going to preach God's word to you on this Easter morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, we thank you for the celebration of Christ being risen from the dead. For without that, we would have nothing to celebrate. We would have no hope. Lord, we pray that our celebration, our joy, would be grounded in the truth that you've revealed to us in Christ and you've expressed to us in your word. So, Lord, we pray that right now you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see beautiful, wonderful truths in your word. And we would extol you and appreciate you for who you really are. And we would align our lives according to how we should position ourselves in relationship to you as our absolute king, our Lord, our master, our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. When we look at the news today, we typically don't see many examples where somebody is using a lot of authority, or somebody put in a position that has lots of authority, and they're using that authority for good, do we? We think of the violence we see in Syria, control over the people in North Korea. Those in possession of authority typically don't use it for the good of others. And I bet that if we were to talk to each one of you, you could give us multiple examples of abuse of authority in your workplace, or in your home, or even in churches you've been a part of. Authority and goodness typically don't go well together. And that's why so often we resist authority, don't we? We want there to be checks and balances so that no one person gets too much authority. And we prize our own freedom and autonomy, even to our hurts, even if it costs us. But I want you to consider something with me this morning. What if there was a person who was truly good? He was good because his nature was good. That's, that's who he was. His goodness went all the way down into the depth of his being. There was no corruptibility in him. No possibility that he would take a bribe. No possibility he would pervert justice or use his power for anything less than the good of his people. Suppose there was such a one. And suppose that this person, at the same time in which he was all good, was also the supreme authority. That means that he could do anything without checking with anybody first. Nobody could legitimately say, you shouldn't have done that. Friends, if such a person, who was all good and all authoritative, existed, what would that mean for your life? How would you position yourself to that moment? Friends, I want you to keep that in mind as you open with me to uh, Psalm 68 in your Bible. Psalms, a, it's a book in the Bible, the biggest book in the Bible, uh, that's just about right in the middle. We're going to look at Psalm 68. This psalm is long. So there's lots we're going to have to skip over. But basically, it consists of three parts. There's an introduction in which we meet three different parties in the psalm. And then we see the body of the psalm, and that is how the parties interact together. And finally, there's a conclusion. We're going to look very briefly at each part. And my prayer is that on this Easter morning, our hearts would be turned to God in such a way that we are glad in Him. And that we rejoice in him and exalt in him in one hand. So let's begin Psalm 68 with the introduction. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. 
And we are starting with what is the original introduction to the psalm, so it's before you get to the very first verse. Verse zero, you would call it. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, a psalm. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you drive, you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall shout, they shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. We'll stop there. That's the introduction of the psalm. And what emerges in this, this song is three parties. First, we have God, and he is the supreme king, right? He arises. He acts. He asserts his kingly authority on the world. And what does he do as king? Well, here's the amazing part. He cares about his people. He is a father to the fatherless. He protects the widows. He leads the prisoner to prosperity. In other words, God here uses his authority to protect the weak and care for his people. Now, that's so different than how many people use their authority today, isn't it? Many people use their authority to pick and choose those who they will interact with. Don't you do that sometimes? But God uses his authority to come to those who are the least desirable in the eyes of the world, and he lifts them up. God uses his authority for good. That's who he is as God. The second party we see in this psalm are those who want him to be king. They are the ones who sing, arise. They are the ones who recognize God's goodness and authority, and because of that, they want him to be the king of the world, of their world. And that's what verse 3 is all about. Uh, Notice there in verse 3. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before him. They shall be jubilant with joy. And David here is stringing together just about every word in the Hebrew language for joy. I don't think he's missed any of them. And, And of course they overlap in meaning. But the point really is that these people are supremely happy. They are joyful. And notice where they're joyful. They are joyful before God. Notice the repetition of that phrase. They are joyful before him, in his presence. This reminds me of what happens in our house when the grandparents come to visit and the kids get just so happy to see them. Uh, They almost dance before them when they finally come through the door. These people are that way before God. They are ecstatic before him. And then there's a third group of people we meet here, and that is God's enemies. Verse number one, those who hate him. They hate God. Why do they hate him? Well, notice verse six, they are rebellious. Never mind that God's authority is perfectly legitimate. He is the king. Never mind that he uses that authority for good. 
They just don't want him to be their king. And this reminds me of when I was in high school. I had this, this history teacher who was so, so good of a person. I couldn't imagine why any students would want to rebel against him. And yet some were. And it struck me, they just don't like authority. Well, these people here in this psalm don't like God's authority. He's loving, but they reject that loving authority. And what do those people do in his presence? Well, that's interesting. If God's people rejoice in his presence, you might expect that the rebellious would, you know, boo and and rage against him in his presence. But that's not what they do. Look there at verse 2. Like smoke, God's enemies are scattered before him. Like wax melts before a fire, God's enemies melt before the Lord. So what we have in this psalm is God, who's the loving, good authority, and then two groups of people. One group of people wants him to be king and rejoices before him, and the other group of people reject him, and they are destroyed before him. And and friends, that begs the question, what group of people do you fall into? Do you want him to be king over the world, over your world? Or do you resist his authority? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how loving or legitimate it is. You just don't want him to be God. You don't want him to be king. Now, friends, if you're here this morning and you realize you fall into that latter category, I imagine you might have all sorts of objections forming in your mind. I understand that. Before I was a Christian, I would not have liked to have heard that message either. I wouldn't want the world to be divided up that way. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, why does God think that he can command people to praise him like that? Who does God think he is that he can just tell people, praise him? That was a huge problem for C.S. Lewis. He said, and I hope you won't be, nobody here will be offended by this, he said that he thought that God was like an old woman always wanting compliments. That was his understanding of God. And that's so unattractive, isn't it? When somebody just wants praise, don't we resist that? Even if we were inclined maybe to give them compliments otherwise, if somebody is seeking them out, well, we don't really want to be with that person at all. And yet that is exactly what God is doing right here. Notice verse 4. Sing to God. Sing praises to God. Lift up a song to him. Who does God think he is that he commands people to praise him? Another objection in your mind might be, okay, even if I'm just the type of person that's going to go along, no particular objection to God, how do I just make myself praise him? See, what God is commanding here, and indeed what separates the two group of people, is that the one group of people who are the righteous, they actually rejoice before him. They have a response of joy. We can't just turn a switch to make ourselves have joy in something, can we? How is God commanding something that that we can't just automatically do. Well, to answer those questions, we want to look at the second section of this psalm, the body, in where, which we see how these uh, parties relate to one another. So let me read verses 7 through 14. O oh God, when you went out before the people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, Before God, the one of Israel, rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. 
The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie in the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall in Zalman. Now that has a lot of interesting imagery there, and we can't take time to explore all of it. But what is basically happening here is this psalm looks back over Israel's history, and and it remembers the events of the Exodus, when God was victorious over the armies of Egypt. God conquered Egypt. He destroyed Pharaoh's vast army. God won the battle. And if you read the account of Exodus, I know there was a movie, but you got to read the original in the Bible. I didn't see the movie, but I hear it wasn't quite exactly what happens in the Bible. But in the Bible, it says, uh, it begins, the account begins saying, the Pharaoh says, I do not know this God, and I will not let the people go. And by the end of the book of Exodus, everybody knows about this God, because he has asserted his authority on the people, and he destroys the enemies. They are wiped away, literally, before the face of God and God's people. After that great salvation, God's people rejoice in him. They are glad in his presence. And this psalm remembers that event. And then this psalm pictures God as coming back from that battle as the victorious king and seated on his throne, having conquered. I think one of the best ways to illustrate this is to to think of those victory parades after World War II. Some of you here may have remembered them. Others read about them in history books. And, and the picture I have in my mind is the, the sailor kissing his girl. You know that picture? And there's the, the parade behind and, and the confetti. And everybody's so happy because the army has returned victorious. Well, a similar thing happened in the ancient Near East. I don't know if there was any kissing involved. But when a king would return from battle, he would process all the way up to his throne. And when he would would sit on his throne, everybody would would shout for joy because here is their king who has returned from battle victorious. He has won. They were glad in their king. And that's what's happening here. This is a song that was written to celebrate God as that returning king. And they would sing it amongst themselves in the assembly to celebrate what God had done. Look at verses 24 through 26. This, This is talking about that procession. Your procession is seen, O God... The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins play tambourines. Bless God in the congregation. O Lord, O you who are Israel's fountain. Now that's describing that victory parade. Where God is marching in, seated on his throne, and the people rejoice in who he is. Now you might be thinking to yourself, if you're remembering the account of the Exodus, well, well, that might be a little bit of an odd way to look at Exodus, because wasn't really that all about God freeing his people? The people having freedom, not being under the slave of, of not being the slaves of Egypt? And, and it is, indeed. And this psalm picks up on that, but, but notice how it picks up on that in a very interesting way. Look at verse 7. Oh God, when you went out before your people... When you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain. Notice the language there. God is going out before them 
And they are coming behind. God is that victorious king, won the battle. He is marching out, and his people trail behind him. You can have that again in verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. I think captives there are the Israelites who God has rescued from Egypt. He's bringing them back. They are the captives that come in his, in his wake. You see, when a king marched in his victory parade, they would display all the spoils of war that the king has brought with them. And this would often be great wealth, gold, silver, great statues, works of art. art. And these things would be precious to the king because he has just won them in battle. What's in God's victory parade? What does God display as as the victorious king having won through his, his battle? Answer, his people. His people are his, are his spoils from war. The tribes of Israel. God hasn't so much won their freedom as he has won them. They are his people. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that would be kind of terrifying. To be possessed by this God who is all authoritative. Except he doesn't want to do anything with these people but bless them. God leads them out of Egypt so he can be with them, with them in his sanctuary, with them as he sits on his throne. He wants to bless them. He wants to bring them to himself. God prepares a place to dwell with these people. Look at verse 9 there. Reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock, that's the people again, found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. So God takes the people out of Egypt. He settles them in a land that he can be their God and they can be his people. Now, notice this passage also talks much about God's enemies. Verses 15 through 18 are about how the other nations would look with contempt on this place that God has made as his dwelling for his people. Israel, you have to understand, did not have the the best location. They, they did not have the most grand cities. If, if you went to Jerusalem back then, it wouldn't be like maybe going to New York City today or, or Rome or, or London, a city known for its, its great um, you know, buildings and everything. And the other nations, therefore, are personified in this passage as mountains looking down at God's holy place, God's dwelling, and they're, they're scoffing God's dwelling because it's so small. But the point of this passage is that while Israel may not be as great, as numerous as the other nations, it might not have the the splendor outwardly, it has something that none of the other nations have, and that is God dwelling with them. And see, look at verse 14. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. Now, in the ancient Near East, if you really want a good army, you're going to have lots of chariots, okay? And and to have 10,000 chariots would just be like a mind-numbing number. That, that's a lot of them. He has, what it, this verse is saying here is that if God is fighting for the nation of Israel, it doesn't matter what the opposing army may be. It doesn't matter how great the splendor of their nation, of their capital, of their people. God's going to win. And that's who he is. That's why it says in verse 10, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a salvation I'm sorry, glory to be to God who belongs deliverances from death. See, 
this passage is talking about who God is as their deliverer and their savior. And this passage in many ways is a window through which we can see the entire Bible. If you want a a summary of what the Bible is all about, you could say it this way. The Bible is about God's people living in God's land under God's rule. Somebody asks you, I notice you're reading the Bible. What is the whole thing about? Well, you could say it's it's about God's people living in God's land under his rule. And then you'd say, well, you should read the rest anyway, even though I've given you the summary. Uh, but that, that's what the, the gist is. And, and see, that goes back to what happened at the very beginning. God created a people for himself. He put them in a special garden that he would be their God and they would obey his rules. Those rules were not burdensome. They were meant to be a blessing for his people. But what happened? They did not want to obey his rules. So they had to leave the garden. They had to go away from God's presence, away from all that was good. But here we see God once again calls his people back to himself. God took the people out of Egypt and he brought them to a special dwelling where he could be their God and they would be his people and he would dwell with them. They would be with him and he would be with them. And he gave them rules to obey. Now, that's what the psalm is essentially about. How does that answer the objections you might have if you don't rejoice in God? What do we see in this passage? We see, I think, two things come out very clearly. Number one, people need a good, sovereign God. That's what people need. And number two, we see that God is good and sovereign for his people. So this psalm talks a lot about God's enemies. And maybe we can't relate to that so much. We don't have physical enemies, although if you watch the news, maybe we do. But I think you can relate because we all have the greatest enemy of all, and that is death. As one person said, death is, we don't fear death so much because we think it's the end, but because we think it might not be the end. We have no idea, apart from reading the Bible, what's going to come next. Only a sovereign God can sustain us in the face of death. Only with the knowledge that God is sovereign and God is good can we know that he will work everything together for the good and we can trust him. We read in verse 10 here that God provides for the needy. Friends, no matter how much we might put on our best Easter clothes this morning and come here uh, uh, looking good, we're all needy. We all have needs. We are all finite creatures and we have fears. But this verse says there is a God who cares for the needy. Look at the last verse in this psalm. God gives strength and power to his people. Well, friends, we need strength and power, don't we? And lo and behold, what do we have here? We have a God who gives strength and gives power. What happens when we realize, one, we need a sovereign God who can take care of us? And two, there is the sovereign God who wants to take care of us. What happens? Well, we are overwhelmed with joy. That's what should happen, at least. We should have that kind of exceeding, over-the-top joy that David talks about here in the beginning. We should use every verb or word for joy in the English language, and then we need more even to describe what that joy is like. The kind of God who we have is the kind of God who we so desperately need. And once we realize that, the response should be joy. I told you before that C.S. Lewis had a problem with the idea of God commanding praise from his people. 
But then he said that he realized something that had escaped him earlier. He said that praise is the completion of joy. Imagine that you are presented with something you love in its most perfect form. The perfect sunrise, the perfect piece of art, the perfect date with the person you love. You want to praise it, don't you? You want to tell somebody, wow, that is great. And that praise is the completion of your joy in it. He said, that's why God commands our praise. He commands us to praise him. And that's really the same as God commanding us to take the maximum amount of joy in him. Because our praise of him is the completion of our joy. Now, you might be wondering, okay, but where is Easter in all of this, right? This is Easter, after all, and preaching this message. I haven't mentioned Jesus once. I haven't mentioned the resurrection. I'm getting there, trust me. But first, before I get there, I need to tell you that without Easter, where we just left off in the psalm, we would have no hope. Does anybody know what happened after God took the people out of Egypt and brought them into the land? They lived there forever, right? Happily ever after? No, they didn't. God's people once again rebelled against him. They did not want him to be king. So remember I said at the beginning that this psalm has two groups of people, those who are righteous and, and rejoice in God and those who are wicked? Well, at the end of the day, everybody turns out in that second category. Everybody is wicked. It was like what happened in the garden all over again. And, and if we had more time, I'd love to show you from the Old Testament how after the people are scattered all over the face of the earth, out of the land that God had brought them into, they begin to long for another exodus. They begin to use that exodus language and say they want another exodus. But they realize that the biggest problem they face is not a physical king who holds them in captive. The biggest problem they face is their sin against God. That's why they're in bondage. The people knew that the reason they were in captivity was not because there was a stronger force than God that held them there, but because God had put them there because of their disobedience. So the greatest enemy is not the physical force out there. The greatest enemy is in our hearts. We are the problem. How is God going to get rid of that enemy? Now, that's, here's where it gets interesting. Because the New Testament looks back at this psalm, and it sees the ultimate victory parade, not God taking the people out of Egypt, but in his defeat of sin. So listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Feel free to turn there if you like. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Or scroll there on your phone, or however it is that you get there. Here, here's what it says in verse 8. He's, he's got this long argument about what, what Christ is doing for the church. And it says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There Paul is quoting Psalm 68. And then he gives the meaning of Psalm 68 in verse 9. It's insane. He ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended above all heavens that he might fill all things. 
What is Paul saying there? He is saying there that the ultimate king in Psalm 68 is Jesus. He is the one who is seen returning from battle as the victorious king. And just like Psalm 68, he brings with him a host of people. The spoils of war are the people he has bought for himself. But what was the battle? Before he ascended, he had to descend into the lower parts of the earth. In other words, he had to die. That's how he defeated the greatest foe, sin and death. Remember what happens to wicked people? They're destroyed. That's what we saw in the psalm. At the end of the day, all people fall into the category of wicked. So all people deserve to be destroyed. But Jesus defeats sin and death by standing in the place of sinners and allowing himself to be destroyed for them. And then after he takes that penalty upon himself, he he defeats sin. Then he rises from the grave, comes out of death, and he is exalted as the greatest king of all, the one who defeats the mightiest foe and, and guarantees the greatest victory. And Jesus doesn't win that victory for himself alone. He wins that victory for his people. The spoils of that victory are that the people he takes to be his brothers and sisters, those who make up his body, that they will be with him. And finally, God's people will be in God's place under God's rule, and they will have a new heart that rejoices in in him. And the praise that Jesus receives for this as the victorious king having defeated death is nothing. Or is, is, it makes what, what God taking people out of Egypt uh, makes that look like nothing. Friends, this is what Easter is all about. Easter is Christ rising from the dead as the conquering king. He defeats the greatest foe, and now he is king over all. The question is, is that what Easter is about for you? So you can't believe that Jesus is Lord of all and think that Easter is about seeing the flowers begin to bud and having sentimental feelings that, that there are new beginnings out there. No, Easter is about what Peter said concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and King. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to put your faith in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Not only is he sovereign and good, and therefore you have no reason in the world to rebel against him, but he took the penalty that rebels deserve upon himself. What a savior. What a king. This God is exactly who you need. And this God is who you have in Christ, if you would trust in him. And to my Christian brothers and sisters, let me ask you, do you rejoice in him? Do you really truly rejoice in him with, as Peter says, joy inexpressible and full of glory? Do you know what it means to be glad in his presence because of who he is? Well, let me read you the conclusion of this psalm, verses 32 to 35. And as I do that, consider if Jesus is everything who he says he is, Shouldn't this express the prayer of your heart? O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. 
the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power and authority of Jesus and how he uses that power to do what only he could do, that is crush our most feared foe, death and sin, by taking them on himself. And then he rises again to new life, bringing with them all those who trust in him as their Savior. Lord, we praise you for that, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in you, and we thank you for who you are. We praise you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.